Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky and Keith Phipps. Our absent co-host Scott has flown to Paris to learn how to paint. You know how he is about his painting. Just don't ask when his next exhibition is. In his place, Chicago critic Deirdre Crimmins is joining us again. Hello, Deirdre. Hello. Thank you. Happy to be here. Was your uh, was your last experience with us everything you wished it to be in more? <laughs> oh, and so much more. I mean, there was dancing, there was singing. <laughs> we spent 17 minutes just discussing a, a, a ballet. Yeah. We're recording this, as always, on a, a video feed so we can see you, and which means <laughs> we can see your cat wandering in and out and uh, sometimes settling with you. Uh, just the one cat? No, I have two cats, but they look very similar, so it can be confusing. Yeah, the one that just wa- wandered by is Agatha, and there's Cora around here as well. Are these uh, references that I should be familiar with? Should um, I immediately be saying, oh, from... No, no, Agatha's because I like old lady names that are creepy, and Cora, be- <laughs> and Cora because I misheard her foster mom, and that name stuck. <laughs> Wait, what was her what was her actual name? She didn't tell me. No, so I <laughs> met her and I was like, "Oh, what's the cat's name?" and she said something and I said, "Oh, did you just say Cora?" and she said, "No, but that's better than what I've been calling her." And I was like, "Okay, but what have you been what have you been calling her?" She's like, "It's Cora now." and like wouldn't tell me the old name. <laughs> Cora won't tell me either, so this is where we are. I thought she was named after celebrity chef Cat Cora. <laughs> okay, that's been a thing. Yeah, I definitely call her that too. <laughs> All right, we'll have to have celebrity chef Kat Cora as one of our uh, guests on an upcoming episode. So last week, we discussed An American in Paris, MGM's best picture-winning Trump musical written around the George Gershwin music catalog and starring Gene Kelly as a World War II soldier turned Paris artist who falls in love with a very young Parisian woman one of his best friends is dating, while the woman closer to his own age tries to become his artistic patron and lover, much to his dismay. There's much less dismay in this week's movie, Magic Mike's Last Dance, also about a man who gets a patronage offer he can't refuse from a rich woman who'd really like to sweep him off his feet. In this case, Mike, played by Channing Tatum, has lost his precarious but beloved carpentry business, introduced in 2012 series launcher Magic Mike. It's just another small business that failed in the wake of COVID, which has left Mike working odd jobs when the woman behind the fundraiser where he's bartending Maxandra, played by Selma Hayek, offers him $6,000 for his services without necessarily specifying what those are. So he offers her a lap dance so explicit and graphic that she invites him to London, where she wants him to choreograph a show in a theater she owns, mostly to show up the rich husband that she's working on divorcing. Mike is uncomfortable with the amount of money she wants to throw at him, but not that uncomfortable. And before long, he's off on a fantasy ride that involves a private jet, a makeover and a wardrobe buying spree, and his own theater full of hot male dancers who he gets to train in the fine art of getting women hot and bothered. 
What could possibly go wrong? Turns out a fair bit, but we'll talk about that in this very strange end for a very strange movie series after this break. What did you want before Miami? I just wanted to escape my life. Do you like bartending? It's not really what I do. What is it that you really do? But then you came along and gave me this unexpected, magical moment that made me remember who I really was. I'm going to put on a show at this famous theater. People are numb, disconnected. We're going to wake them up with a wave of passion they've never felt before. Hell yeah. So I left a lot out of the description of uh, Magic Mike's Last Dance in terms of some of the dynamics going on here and the, the weird twists this movie takes, but also in terms of the series leading up to this film, which is uh, two very different movies. You know, Magic Mike is kind of a, uh, a downbeat, almost realism-based film about the seamier side of the, uh, the fantasy in strip clubs. And then Magic Mike XXL is just about the fantasy and specifically about the fantasy that strippers are selling to women or maybe in the case of that movie, giving to women out of the generosity of their hearts and the the desire to see every woman actualized as a sexual being. Now we've come to movie three and it's a romantic drama about two people from different classes who don't quite fit together for reasons, but also there's a lot of stripper dancing. It's just strange. I want to know what y'all think of the series in general and how these these different movies fit into it. But we should really start with Magic Mike's Last Dance. Deirdre, you you tweeted uh, obliquely about your thoughts on this film, and I haven't (laughs) seen anything further from you about it. But I am very excited to dig into uh, why you love this movie so very, very much. Oh, no. No, no, no. The first two films in this series I absolutely adore. I frequently defend both online and in person. I think that the first film itself is a breakdown and reestablishment of what modern masculinity is. I think that the second film, in addition to being a fantasy, is also a wonderful examination of male friendship and ways, ways that we're not used to seeing in terms of open affection and supportive careers and things like that. I think the third film, I have active, active dislike for it. It, in my opinion, dives into none of the good stuff from the first ones, completely ignoring everything that it's done to build up and examine things but still be fun i don't find it fun men don't really take their pants off just their shirts like there's just so many different ways i can come into this as a to criticize it there's a pull quote for the poster (laughs) (laughs) like i just too many pants It's just all about like the other films are all about the men in a way that men are allowed to own and be imperfect and relatable. And this just seems to be all about the men in another like male centric sort of way where all women do is think about men and all a woman would possibly do is 
firm her life up entirely around men. I don't feel any that the women have any agency or any interest. I don't find any chemistry between the characters. I can keep going on. I don't <laughs> let me. But yeah, there's just very little that I liked about this. And part of my frustration is because I had such high expectations because the first two films are just so fascinating to me. No, I really want to let you because uh, <laughs> there's there's a lot here that I want to unpack. This is a movie packed with many many things, as we were uh, we were talking about beforehand. I can pick up the ball because I my feelings are very similar to yours towards both the movies leading up to it and this one. And there are like a lot of things I could dig into about this one that don't work, uh, which some of which you already touched on. But like I think it all just comes down to like this franchise has lost the plot about what this dance saying means and is for like i i went back and I, I i interviewed channing tatum around the first magic mic for the av club because i wanted to check this because i was pretty sure that we we had talked about this <laughs> and we did uh like we talked about how male stripping is kind of inherently funny and these are his words he says women go for the entertainment value even though it's kind of lame entertainment they still go to watch their friend get embarrassed when they're getting grinded on they're not getting any real sexual stimulation from it Guys go for a visual sort of thing, and it's more of a serious kind of darker thing, I think. But he's like flat out saying, like, this, like, male stripping is not sexy like by nature. It's like funny. And I feel like the first two films, as you laid out very well, Deidre, like they were very much about sort of like the male experience of stripping and like to the degree that it was about like giving pleasure to women in the second film. It was in the context of just making them happy. Like the the, the standout scene of Magic Mike XXL is the convenience store, uh, you know, the I wanted that way dance where like the only goal. It's not to get her horny. It's just to make her smile. And like the whole sort of ethos of this is like, we're just here to like, we're just here to help these women have a good time, you know, and put a smile on their face. And then this movie comes in and like really romanticizes it like literally and figuratively in a way that it felt so much cornier now than it did <laughs> back when it was acknowledging that this is like kind of a corny thing that is happening, you know? And then there's the Salma Hayek character who is just so poorly conceived up and down and all around it just like what she wants, what she needs, like sh the fact that she doesn't seem to, to know and has to be like told and there's like a line where her butler, I guess, says says to Mike that she is a woman who overcomplicates things. And I feel like that is very much just like emblematic of this movie. Like it took something that was like very simple, men grinding on women to make them smile and turned it into like a love, like, or not even just like about her like finding herself, you know, through, through this. Not to mention that it's all just like blatant marketing for the Magic Mike stage show that she directed and is on tour right now coming to a city near you so right. there's also that like layer of it uh as well anyway i found it really hard to enjoy this film the way that i enjoyed the first two but i think maybe you and i are uh, uh on one side of things and maybe tasha and keith are on the other no, oh, okay. <laughs> exactly my thoughts here. Uh, you, you kind of clarified part of like what made the dancing work in the other films that doesn't work here as well. Like I really like the first two as well, and 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 for some of the reasons you cite, and 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 like the second one, it, they really do lend a legitimacy to this this 
you know, this very not respected form form of dance. And like, basically, I've, I've described in my review of Magic Mike's Last Dance, but like XXL basically ends with the stop making sense of male stripping. I mean, that's, that's, you know, <laughs> not to get to comparisons earlier, but that, that's like more in some ways closer to the extended American Ferris Ballet. It just keeps mm-hmm. going and, and changing the forms. But this is, it felt so much smaller and undeveloped and, and I it's just really a question like what is this movie about i mean some of the dancing is is remarkably good i mean like i do you know i think you're right about the applications of the dance being off in this nonetheless i think that opening sama hayek shanning tatum thing is is pretty great and really sexy and then all the chemistry they have together is pretty much burned up in that <laughs> one scene because the rest of it just makes no sense and i, I really do like Salma Hayek Pinel, I really do like her a lot, generally speaking, but but not not so much here. It's not not a great role for her. Yeah, agreed. I I agree that I mean I did think that that first sequence between them, where he's giving her a six thousand dollar lap dance, I thought it was pretty sexy, but not necessarily for the characters. I was seeing two actors that I have a lot of affection for from a lot of different projects do something physically challenging and difficult together that they were, they both seemed very in on. And again, not an unnecessarily turned on kind of way, but like it was kind of like watching ballet. It was watching something where they're kind of simulating sex in a, a pretty open, uh, unashamed kind of way, but it's also just sort of an act of uh, complicated athleticism where they're both keeping full control of their bodies and especially control of their faces. <laughs> and they both try to look like they're really enjoying this uh, weird sequence. But honestly, uh, if I if I had written anything about this movie, it would have been, you can leave this movie after 20 minutes. <laughs> because I just, I'm not sure anything interesting happens after the dance is over. When we cut from the end of the dance to the two of them waking up in bed together, I might have actually said, yeah. what? In the theater. Yeah. That's when I was like, uh-oh, going off the rails a bit here. And and I did not actually find that opening uh, lap dance scene like that successful. I was already starting to like cringe a, a little bit, but you know, I was willing to kind of like ride the magic mic experience and see where it went. But as soon as it was like, oh no, they. So uh-huh. she. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as soon as like, like it was really like, oh, they did sleep together. I was like, you just threw the whole conceit of this franchise out the window, just like by turning him into a, a sex worker, basically. I mean, I, I guess male strippers are sex workers too, but. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, it is a straight up uh, turning him into, you know, uh, he, he sleeps with her for mm-hmm. money. Like there's just, there's no sense whatsoever that there was an attraction there that didn't just come directly out of, I will pay you $6,000 to take mm-hmm. off your clothing for me. And it's not that there would necessarily be something wrong with him being a sex worker, but as you say, the, the first two movies are about the fantasy of male strippers and about, you know, what, what you're, what you're selling is not necessarily sex. Kind of what you're selling is power. You know, what you're selling is the opportunity to fully engage the female gaze and to kind of, to be serviced, to be this, they hit this really hard in Magic Mike XXL, just the idea that, that male strippers are there to play to women's fantasies and and give them a, a kind of a power fantasy, uh, almost more than a sexual fantasy. 
And I guess there's a power fantasy in, I've got enough money to make Channing Tatum sleep with me. But then based on that, we're also supposed to believe that he's so in love with her that that's his real motivation for crossing an ocean, for taking her abuse and her contrarism and her her screaming at him constantly and changing what she wants. Her for withholding him to, like, information for no reason. <laughs> for him to just sort of like sheepishly follow her around and, and do whatever she wants. It's because he loves her. Based on two minutes of talking and four minutes of enthusiastic grinding, and we, we're not sure how many minutes of sex, but like that's it. And, and he's in love with her. And I'm like, so the movie, he strongly implies uh, through him that his relationships never work out, that, you know, some he's doing something wrong or women are doing something wrong, but he just can't be in a lasting relationship. And I watch this movie and I'm like, what exactly is he doing wrong? He's much like, um, you know, Milo. He's He's young, he's beautiful, and he's just completely giving his heart to women and entering relationships entirely on their terms. What's going wrong in these relationships that mean none of them ever last? Like, what aren't we seeing? It just, I don't know. It just, it feels like the kind of book where you find out that uh, even though the protagonist is a 27 year old woman, she's never had sex because it's super, super important that the guy that she's in a romance with be her first. Yeah, and they have like absolutely no chemistry on screen as far as I'm concerned. Like the dance I did find sexy, but when it actually gets to the point of seeing them bond and actually converse and try and build something together, it just I buy none of it. None of it makes sense. Their characters don't make sense together. And then initially, like she offers him money and he does the whole like, no, 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 I'm retired thing. And I'm like, okay, we already went through this in XXL and he had to be pulled out of retirement to go on tour. Like what it is being enhanced in his character. And I don't feel like it added abs- anything at all and even dropped a lot of stuff. And also is like, as far as stuff it dropped, there's one scene, the, a, a zoom conversation with the old, the old crew the, of, of dancers, you know, um, who are not a part of this Joe Manchinello, Matt Bomer at, at all. They have a Kevin, Kevin Nash. Nash. Yeah. They have a little like a zoom conversation, but that, but that's it. You know, obviously he's in London um, and they're all, some form of retired it seems so we instead we get this like new cast of dancers complete with like an audition montage that really does not work for for various reasons but it really highlighted like when we got to the end you know this big stage show it highlighted to me like i don't know who a single one of these guys are mm-hmm. other than like the one guy that they brought in from rome i don't know his name but you know just the the one that she really wanted or the one that max really wanted i can pick him out of line but like i don't know any information about any of these other guys i don't know any of their relationships with mike like the whole the two films especially the second film was so much about the like male camaraderie you know it was, it was, a, it was a road movie you know between friends and it's just completely left out here there's not like even really an attempt to faint at it but for some reason, we had to give Max a daughter uh, to provide like really weird wraparound narration and have to be shuttled out Horrible of the narration. to be shuttled out of the final performance like over over and over again. Like why why even have her there? I don't understand. Yeah, and she's like telling us about like no one knows when dance started. Like all this stuff, it's utterly ridiculous and like it makes no sense. I hated the narration so much. I usually hate wraparound narration just because I'm like, really, guys, you couldn't fit this in somewhere else. But it just works so terribly here and really detracts from everything that's happening. 
it's meant to sound sort of poetic, but like everything being expressed is just meaningless. It's these these big meaningless abstractions. There's like this whole like, like thread of like financial inequality, you know, like she, that is that she or she like has this like fixation on that is obviously supposed to link to her mom and Mike, but it's just like her spouting, I don't know, like anti-capitalist. Pretentious yeah. Yeah. pseudo bullshit. Yeah, thank you. I think that's it. what I was trying to come up with. Exactly. <laughs> and not only is it pretentious, like pseudo bullshit, it's like she keeps coming back to, she'll, she'll say something like dance is a, a form of art that has no desire, but you know, my mom and, uh, and Mike didn't know this. Like she, she keeps coming back to, observations that at whatever time she's making the observations, the characters she's speaking over don't know. And I'm like, okay, first of all, how do you know this thing? How do you know they don't know this thing? And are you, are you, you're just sort of meant to be like an omniscient narrator, even though you're an early teen girl who we don't really know anything about, except that you're kind of a a pissy grind of a a kid. And don't they, (sighs) right? They wrap it around that this is like part of a book that she's yeah, writing. Yeah, like she's writing a novel. <laughs> I don't want to read that. that. It's no. terrible. Yeah. Novel, apparently, with no characters. Everything in about it. that yeah. was extraneous. I think it really does. It just felt like a padded out kind of half-assed movie, which is kind of surprising given the quality of the other two. And it's, it's the same talent involved. The the you know same writer, Reed Carolyn tatum soderbergh you know it's it's just like i don't i don't know what went wrong here or if the effort just wasn't there or what but it just it's just not a, it doesn't feel like a finished thing i mean i think this franchise just kind of disappeared up its own ass you know yeah. <laughs> like i think like the stage show like tie-in is just epitomizes that you know it's not a movie mm-hmm. it's marketing the, the maddening thing though is that uh, a lot of that did go into it like Matt Solar Sites did this lengthy interview with Soderbergh for Vulture where Soderbergh is like explaining some of these elements and where they came from and it's like He's talking about how the the daughter and the butler, who's kind of the irascible butler with the secret heart of gold that's maybe the daughter's best friend and maybe Maxandra's best friend and maybe just the, the wisest person here, but is also kind of a dick, is like... He he took those both characters both from like Ernest Lubitsch movies. He he's talking about all these like high flown references and all of these passions that he brought to this movie and all of these things that he just cares about so much in terms of like why the narration had to be in place and what it's meant to evoke. And it's like he's just really feeling aspects of this movie that I'm just not sure anybody in the audience is gonna be feeling in terms of what what he thinks he's communicating versus what actually comes off the screen. Yeah, when we were trying to decide what to pair with this, like mm-hmm. we we looked at that uh, that interview, it was like, no, none of these are going to work. <laughs> none, of, none of the references he has here are going to work. <laughs> I'm I'm just very confused about why this movie exists. I mean, it it exists as a commercial for the stage show, I guess. But if you were going to sell people on the fantasy of going to the stage show. Why spend so much of this movie showing the stage show and making it look not very interesting? Why spend so much time on characters that are in the stage show while abandoning any pretense of caring about anybody who's in the show, like making any of them characters or like even literally giving them names? (laughs) At the end, it's just kind of a, a review 
where we just watch them dance and hear kind of hanky boring uh, emceeing to, to stitch it all together. But it doesn't make the show look very interesting. And it, the, the building of the show sure doesn't have any energy to it. No. And like the way that it's pieced together is like this scrappy group is going to make it happen for one night only. They like it just, show. yeah, it feels very like Muppets to me. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just, I mean, it does definitely Muppets. have some, uh, <laughs> the, the rich old man is going to tear down our clubhouse. So we've got to put on a show to make enough money in one night to buy it. Except she's already bought it because she's super rich and her jerk husband is just uh like weaponizing bureaucracy to mess with her because he's mad that she's leaving him. Yeah. And there's just so many, like (sighs) why only one show? Like there's so many things that don't quite make sense to me. And I think because it's either not selling the fantasy enough or it's just boring enough that my mind is wandering that I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Whereas the other films, there were a lot, plenty of things that don't make sense, but I'd just be like, yeah, I know what you're getting at. I don't know. So much of the second film didn't make sense for me. Mm in a way that because because they were just constantly telling us they were constantly preaching to us like the most important thing in the world is a woman's fantasies and and the greatest thing that you can do as like a a diplomat to women uh, <laughs> from the side of the men is is come to them and spray them with chocolate sauce so they feel like they've been ejaculated all over like there was there's just a lot of very weird stuff going on in that movie in terms of what it thinks women want mm-hmm. And Donald Glover kind of coming into mm. the middle of it to just sort of spout poetry. And that's about one of the worst parts of the movie. <laughs> women are wonderful. I don't know. All of it just a weird sort of fantasy. But here it's like there's a, a weird, the kind of weird fantasy where the man isn't really a character. He's just a prop. And the woman is the thing that the movie is about. Like it's, it's that kind of romantic drama. But then there's just all of this stuff kind of crufted onto the outside of it that doesn't make much sense. And the woman at the center of it is just kind of opaque. You know, this this woman who just keeps changing who she is and what she wants in every single scene in a way that like if you're supposed to project in this movie as like the fantasy here is that that I'm her and that this beautiful man like wants me and will do anything for me. It's like... Yeah, if you're if you're gonna make that land, you've got to make a character out of her that I would want to be instead of a character I, I kind of cringe from. Mm-hmm. I'm all for unlikable women in movies. I'm all for for complicated and angry women in movies, but I could just never get a handle on who she was supposed to be, what she was supposed to want, what we were supposed to feel about her. Uh, I want to briefly touch on another uh, unlikable woman in in this movie, uh, which is the oh I don't even know like what what her role is, but you know she has to she's the one who like is going to come and shut them down because their stage oh. is a half inch too <laughs> too tall or whatever. Um, Boy, she's a character out of a Lubitsch movie too, with her <laughs> like fussy clothes and her fussy glasses and her her pursed lips. Right, well, and she gets a scene directly out of Magic Mike XXL. Like the the scene with her on the bus is pretty much like an exact replication of the aforementioned convenience store scene. It's like we just got to get her to smile, we just got to make her happy, you know, uh, and and we're going to do that through dance. And like honestly, 
that was one of the few beats of the movie that like sort of worked for me or like yeah, I actually did you, you know but again it was just like repeating something <laughs> that, that already worked in the last mm, movie is it clever though I mean when they're all kind of like winking at her and, and presenting to her and, and making her feel special that part could kind of land for me but when it turns out that the big fantasy at the end is the Italian dra- dancer with feathers glued all over him, <laughs> like in in what seems to be the worst Swan Lake costume ever, just like making gestures at her, like I I'm the I'm the hot beautiful Swan here to seduce you and take you away to my nest. I guess is what his body language is saying, but I don't know when the, the when the big reveal happened when when all of these like you know, shirt open men slowly starting to show skin, just part and review. I had this guy that looks like he's rolled in tar and feathers. (laughs) I I I think, I think I may be blacked out uh, (laughs) during that part because I had forgotten it until, until just now. But, you know, I guess like in its defense, like the fact that all it's building to is just making her smile, like her, she's laughing at, like it goes back to the idea that like, this is kind of, just funny and it's entertainment you know it's not how you discover your womanhood or like what matters to you you know it it was just it was it put this style of dance back in the context of just being like fun and making people happy (laughs) and so and so much of the movie forgot about that it adds all this extra weight to it so another counter argument they're on a bus and that's cool It is. I was going to say, like, just in case you forgot we were in London, it's the top deck of a double deck mm-hmm. bus. But I think I have a slightly different take on it because they do want to make her smile, but it's not, okay, she smiled and great, sure. she won, right. but like, stupid bet. They need to get she something out of her. And we got her yeah. to compromise yes. her job. Like, <laughs> so I think that's my issue. It's there's like For the that first pa- time ever, seemingly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's like that power play there where it's just like, it's, they need something out of her. It's not just like, oh, we're going to make a smile and like, maybe she'll get me some yeah. Cheetos. That's, like, that's, that's very valid. <laughs> <laughs> to to um, clarify, also, we're talking about the character of Edna Eaglebauer. <laughs> oh. Of course we are. Edna, of course she's called Edna. Edna. This is the Muppets. <laughs> oh, jeez. I, I have never, I wrote a big piece about this for The Dissolve. It was, in fact, maybe the last piece that I wrote for The Dissolve, because whenever I go back there uh, in a fit of nostalgia, it's the, the thing at the top of my page. But I wrote a piece about just not quite understanding what Magic Mike XXL thought female pleasure looked like because of the whole, uh, like, let's let's spray chocolate sauce and uh, whipped cream and anything else we can get our hands on onto women. And it's just, it's never really escaped me that the Big Dick Richie scene, which they just released as a, a trailer teaser, where he's dancing all over that convenience store, challenging her to smile. And he's like, ripping open chips and throwing them around and he's squeezing a water bottle and again uh, imitating ejaculation all over the place she just glares at him the entire time he's making a huge mess that she has to clean up (laughs) but then when he comes and talks to her like she is a human person that's when she smiles because he says something charming and um disarming and funny and like, I don't know, I, I wanted more people talking to each other like human beings in this movie and maybe less, I'm going to do a, a sexy pull-up dance while you straddle my crotch uh, stuff going on. And then just the assumption that, oh, well, you know, after the sexy crotch pull-ups, of course we're in love. Mm-hmm. 
Speaking of movies that could have used more people talking to each other instead of just dancing through it. I was really hoping you were going to try to segue to American in Paris with <laughs> speaking of movies that could have used more underwear pull-up dances. Uh, I was going to say it before, but then you added the crotch pull-up, so I had to like <laughs> backtrack a little. And, you know, in the end, who doesn't benefit from people uh, adding crotch pull-ups? Uh, well, maybe maybe people in this movie. Let's take a break, and then we'll get into connections, and uh, we'll we'll see what American in Paris has that isn't crotch pull ups uh, <laughs> that's worth connecting with Magic Mike's Last Dance. I've assembled the top tier of talent across multiple movement disciplines, and they're all very eager to please and quite. Athletic, as you requested. Excellent work as usual, Renata. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things that they have in common. Uh, Genevieve, you were pointing out that the one of these uh, sort of suggested connections that we brought up is maybe a lot more uh, prevalent, obvious, and needing to be discussed than others. Yes, crotch pull-ups. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> the CPUs. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, no, it is, of course, the, the relationship between a, a wealthy woman and a, a far from wealthy man who uh, she becomes a, a patron of. And there is, uh, you know, a, a stronger thread of romance uh, in that relationship uh, in Magic Mike's Last Dance than in An American in Paris. But um, there is certainly, you know, the suggestion, no matter how overt of, you know, a, a romantic slash sexual relationship complicates that uh, that patronage uh, in, in both cases. And we talked in the Half on American in Paris about sort of the way that Milo is kind of her being wealthy and her having this position of power is like uh, presented sort of like antithetical to her womanhood and, you know, kind of positioning her as a villain just by virtue of her having this power over uh, our, our male protagonist. And to its credit, uh, Magic Mike's Last Dance does not like overtly try to uh, vilify Max. Uh, you know, I think it, it is attempting to uh, make us sympathize with her much more than American in Paris is. It kind of does her dirty just by virtue of the character being poorly conceived and written. But I don't think the conception around her is that her wealth and her power over Mike make her less of a woman. It is very much fixated on the idea that she. She is a woman and she is rediscovering her womanhood through Mike. Even if the movie thought that, even if the, the characters thought that, even if, if somebody was making that argument or, or portraying that, I think it's kind of fundamental to what a Magic Mike movie is that Mike himself would not judge somebody that way. Like Mike himself is very much positioned as, as the fantasy man. And if what you want is a foot rub, the fantasy man provides it. If what you want is your hand slipped up somebody's shirt, even though it's a stranger, uh, because you've just offered him $6,000, Mike is there to provide that for you. His, his whole thing is service to these women. And one of the services he's providing is not being a dick about the fact that she is the one uh, paying the bills. Like He's just very much got a series-long uh, background of 
I'm here to accept whatever you want, baby. You know, it's, it's the, the Ryan Gosling, Hey girl meme, where <laughs> his, his primary thing is just to be like, you know, Hey girl, like, however it is that you want to actualize yourself, including by buying me many thousand dollars worth of suits. That's cool. I can get behind that girl. I mean, he is a little uncomfortable about the suit buying. <laughs> he is a little but then, uncomfortable but then about it. You know, he looks so good in the suit. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. So, um, to, Speaking of patronage, like there's always the part of like if there's anything slightly subversive, there might be a reestablishment of the status quo at the end of the film. And at mm-hmm. the end of the film, we find out she's not going to have any of right. her money, and she's going to be broke right. because it's really not her money. Mm-hmm. And to you know, with Milo in, a, in an American in Paris, it's her father's money, but it's not like he's going to take it back necessarily. But here, it is very much she's spending someone else's money on borrowed time, mm. and in the end, she's lost it all. So it's kind of like, oh, it's okay. Is this is the film saying it's okay that they can go ahead and be a interesting? Couple? Yeah now that dynamic has shifted back she gets to the what... guy but she can't have the money but my and milo milo doesn't get the guy but she gets to keep her money <laughs> it, yeah. it ties into that meta touch where they're remaking or revamping a play about a woman who has to choose between love or money it's one of the many things that kind of felt half-baked about this although it's a mm-hmm. half a clever idea at least yeah, that's uh, speaking of th- things in American in Paris that are just never resolved. You know, the the weird empty dangling threads, the weird empty dangling thread of there was this play that was playing in this theater. It was a huge hit. People loved it. But I'm going to dismantle it because it's sexist and replace it with scantily clad men. It's just something that never feel it, it feels like a theme in search of a payoff. It feels like an idea that just never quite ends up being an idea per se. And maybe that's because we just have so little idea of like what this play looked like or what it meant to people. Like if it's so stodgy and and boring and predictable and sexist, why is it sold out every night and has been for, I think they say two years? Like what what is going on in this play that we need to know about? Because like the facts just don't seem to add up. It also up. looks bad. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like yeah. a bad play. It looks terrible. It looks and, boring. And boring. Yeah. And I think this is where this this my anger towards this film kind of tips from thinking that it just doesn't know how to build characters to being like ever so slightly anti-feminist is because you're right. The play is just like, it has a woman who has to choose between money and love and how dare that happen. Literally, that's what happens in this film. Like Selma Hayek has to say like, I don't want my money. I'm choosing my love. And in the end, she can't have both. And isn't the point of them rejecting the play supposed to be like, you can have both or you can have neither, or, you know, this is not how things work anymore. And that is how the film itself mm-hmm. works. And it just frustrates the hell out of it. As, as much as I said, you could leave this movie after 20 minutes, I have to admit, I, I don't know if this is worth saying through the whole film for, <laughs> but the moment where she confesses to him that she's finalized the divorce and she's going to lose all the money and he gets this look of consternation on her face, on his face, and then just kind of like backs off her like, oh, uh, okay, bye. And then she's left literally just on screen by herself with this look on her face of, oh, he really was in it for the money, you know, before he pulls a psych on her. I really did kind of like that moment. It's it's one of the few moments in the film where he does something I could picture a person actually doing, mm-hmm. where he's not a fantasy that, that only exists to service her slash you, the presumably a woman uh, watching. It's a moment where he does something a little cruel and and kind of funny that's just entirely for himself and that's entirely spontaneous. 
And I just really liked it as a moment where he becomes a character for a second instead of uh, a bland standee of a guy with a shirt off. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's relevant in both of these movies that neither of the the poor, struggling, starving artist men involved is actually looking for a patron. Neither of them are looking for a, a sugar mama. Like neither of them are looking to have their expenses paid or have fancy things bought for them. They're both really surprised and a little unnerved when the offer comes along and then they don't know what to do with it or who they are in relationship to it. But like neither one of them is on the make. Neither one of them is a a gigolo, basically. They're both just kind of like lured into it by circumstance, which I don't know, it's it's a small connection, but it seems like it's relevant in terms of the kind of story that the filmmakers think they're making in both of these I cases. I think it's significant. I, I think it's significant also that, that Jerry and in, in, in American in Paris very much wants to be an artist. And Mike is kind of done and is sort of brought out of semi-retirement to and, and, and like kind of forced to stretch himself artistically by actually becoming a choreographer and a director. Whereas uh, in American Paris, uh, it's just sort of like here's some here's some more support for what you're already doing. I don't know if there's anything, anything like hugely significant about that difference, but it is definitely a difference between those two these two characters. I think it's significant, if only because we're just we're very clear on what Jerry wants. You know, he whether it's specifically to have, have an exhibition, I don't know, but he'd like to improve his painting and he'd like to be seen as a legitimate painter not for the money, but because painting matters to him. I'm not sure we ever really get a sense of what Mike feels about being offered a chance to move into choreography. I I really do feel that the only reason that he comes to London is because he is suddenly and spontaneously and inexplicably and nonsensically in love with Maxandra and wants to be with her. There's just no sense of ambition out of him. There's the one sequence where he stops the guy who's doing a chair dance wrong and is like, no, you do a chair dance this way. Like, and in that scene, maybe you get like a little sense of him having a pride in his craft and feeling like he has like things to, to educate people about. But for the most part, it's just like, he's just there because the story tells him he has to be there. He just, he seems so opaque throughout this movie. Whereas Jerry is just such an open book. Well, the strange part for me is, is that Mike is an artist. He likes to make furniture and that kind of seems to somehow be ignored. And there is that part on the zoom call when he's with like his bro team of um, fellow dancers where they mention he mentions like, Oh, I have to pay you back. So they patronized his like furniture career at some point, Mm -hmm. like somehow should she want to actually invest in something that this man is passionate about? It wouldn't have been his dancing. It's just like such a strange dynamic there. It would be like if Milo gave Jerry money for his dancing and his singing. And he's like, well, I guess I can do this, but this is not my, where I'm, my career is focused. This is just a, more of an excuse to bring up a, a little uh, moment I liked. And uh, right before <laughs> the uh, opening uh, crotch pull-up dance in Magic Mike, there's that little beat where he's like going around her very fancy house and like testing everything for sturdiness and being like, this is a sturdy house, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I did like, it just, it felt like a nod to the fact that like, you know, this is kind of what he really cares about is building things, you know? And I mean, like, <laughs> sure, I mean, 
mean, yeah, I guess like he's building something with this stage show, but he doesn't know he's doing it. And like, that's sort of the, and that is just like one of the most ridiculous parts about this is that he go, she drags him all the way to London to the theater before even like telling him, much less asking him to do this thing that he's never done before. Like, it's just such an asinine thing and it is not it has no relation like you say to like who he is as a person i guess it it reduces him i guess as a person to a body in a lot of ways it's funny like earlier this week i saw uh ant-man and the wasp quantum mania and a, a big part of that movie is a character telling everybody else Yes, I know a whole lot of things that you want to know, need to know, and keep asking me about, but there's just, there's no time to discuss that. We just, we have to bowl forward deeper into the movie, much deeper into the movie, before I can tell you this really basic information that I have. And it got me thinking about just how much I hate that as a plot point, how artificial it always feels. It's just about withholding information from the audience, but withholding it in a way that seems fake and artificial and and rude to the people on screen. And here it's the same thing. Like, again, there's no explanation for him getting into a plane and and crossing the ocean with her, except he's, he's in love. So he's got to follow her. Like, even though she's being weird and withholding about just really basic what, I I don't know. He, she could be selling him to a slave ring. Who knows? (laughs) Thus, any slave would, ring would want him. He's very talented. <laughs> but Jennifer, that's hilarious. When he when he's moving things off flat surfaces and uh, tugging on shelves, I 100% took that as, all right, he's going to be dangling off yeah. that soon. Oh, no, uh, no. That, yeah, that's how I took it, too. But <laughs> Sure, but what I'm saying is I, I did not for a moment see the second oh. layer of he's, he's doing it as a carpenter who does actually <laughs> care about craft. That's a really cool observation that I think is a lot of fun that, that does give an additional layer to that. And the, really the one connection that made me think of it Im- 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 immediately was they both end or, or sort of end close to the end with ballet sequences with, with, with American in Paris. We had the long ballet sequence we already discussed with this one. We have a kind of a similar thing where, where it's a, more directly a reenactment of the relationship between our two leads, uh, you know, Mike, Mike and Max. Um, and in case you missed it, it does undercut it by, by these really kind of ham handed edits, you know, flashback edits to, yeah. to what it's, it's based on. But it is it's very much a, a ballet sequence because they, they bring in uh, a ballerina. The the one female dancer in the show, there's another woman, but she is more the protagonist and doesn't actually, of the show within the movie, it doesn't actually dance herself. But, but we see her earlier as performing in a ballet and there's this like kind of this long lingering close-up on her face, <laughs> which which I not quite you know when you watch it you're like why are, why are they doing that? Well, it's when she shows up later, you know that this is a a ballerina who who will be performing this uh, with with Mike. It, it is the titular last dance, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I guess beyond the level of overt sexiness, I think a big difference to me is that that it is uh, a, re- a recapitulation of, of of the story we just saw versus an American in Paris, which kind of opens up the themes of the of the of the, the film to kind of like this fantasy uh, Paris. I, I find one more effective than the other, although I did enjoy the uh, final dance and Roger Mike's last dance. Uh, it's one of the highlights of the film. 
I enjoyed it, but I, in the way that we were talking uh, earlier about movies where, uh, you know, bravura, long take shots take you out of the film, I spent so much time in that dance sequence just thinking, how do you, how do you do a dance on a surface that's so slippery? Like all you have to do is kind of push yourself off and you you cross the entire stage. Well, you need stage. a plumber and a ballerina. I, Those were the two things he needed the <laughs> that, day, that the, the day before it opened. They just, they pulled this together. This. I mean, that's tradition. It is, uh, it, it's all going to happen in the exact last second or it's just not real enough. Uh, and definitely that ballerina was happy to be uh, called up and told, you're going to have to learn this incredibly complicated uh, dance that will depend on expert timing on both of our parts and also be on a very slippery, dangerous surface. Uh, we're, we're going up tomorrow night. She was definitely into that. Uh, but yeah, the techniques of that uh, dance, I found just very distracting. I, I just kept thinking about what it was probably like to shoot it, especially since pretty much everybody who's ever worked in water like that in a film has then come out in interviews and said, and it was freezing cold and the whole thing was miserable. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the big difference between, I mean, of course, there's that similarity that this these both end with this giant dance. The root of the major differences from the, are the fact that Max is not the dancer. Like, mm-hmm. we're getting these really obvious flashbacks, but there's, this is not giving, adding anything to their chemistry. All it is is reminding of us, us of something we saw, like, less than an hour ago. Like, <laughs> there, the seduction is not happening between Mike and Max, like, and, and any version of it. And in American in Paris, between Lise and Jerry, like, even though it's a different story that they're telling through that dance, you can just see the chemistry, you can feel how connected they are. And that adds something to it. In that even then, we then get to see them actually end up together a moment later after that's done. Like, I don't know. It's just the magic mic one. Like it, I spent the whole time thinking like, you know, those remember in the nineties when they had those like exercise slides and you'd go back and forth and it was supposed to take care of your thighs. <laughs> like I was like, did they train on one of those? Like <laughs> it, it just, it, that got my mind going and I thought it was fascinating to watch, but it just added nothing to the actual romance in the story. I wish you credit the uh, ballet dancer. Her name is, is Kylie Shay. Uh, if you Google her, you'll see her twisting her body into all kinds of uh, impossible positions. Her, her <laughs> other uh, big credit was, I, I haven't watched, I don't, I'm way behind on the show, but her other big credit is, is she was on an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which I believe was the... Oh, is that the Mac dance? I believe it was the, the Mac, Mac one. Dance. Yes. Uh, yes I believe uh, which which did come to mind. Uh, and and, yes. <laughs> and I, I know I am not alone in that because over at Vulture, we have a sort of a making of uh, feature on the the Mac dance from It's Always Sunny and the day after Ma- or like the week after Magic Mike came out, it was like popping again on the on traffic. So like people were definitely <laughs> looking for it after seeing Magic Mike. I, I guess I was thinking of the Dream Ballet sequence connecting to sort of just the full show of uh, Magic Mike uh, rather than just that specific one-on-one between them. Although I guess in terms of like the having a connection to their relationship it is strongest in that moment, you know, because the, the ballet in American in Paris, like it, 
it has scenes, you know, it's not, it's not a one take, <laughs> you, you, you know, like there are, there are costume changes, there are set different sets that are like going in and out of paintings, you know, um, it is, it does kind of have that feeling of a show, you know, with different, even though it's all one piece of music, and that is different from um, the, the one in Magic Mike, it does have, you know, like sort of individual dances within the, the bigger whole, in a way that feels more to me, like what we get in, in Magic Mike, which is all my way of saying that I can't believe they did pony, but we didn't see it, and Mike didn't dance to it. There's even there's even thank you. There's even like like setup of of like like because they have to shuttle the teenage daughter out of there, and she's you know she's told that she can come back after pony, and then we don't get pony, and it's not what Mike does. And, uh, like you had one job, Magic Mike, have Channing Tatum dance to pony. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think Magic Mike's last dance had a lot of jobs that it didn't uh, fall through <laughs> on, that it, that it fell through on rather than uh, coming through on. Um, I'm in the same boat. I, I thought of the sequences that end this movie, the dance sequences that end this movie as the entire show uh, versus the, the ballet because they're both over long and don't move the story <laughs> forward and kind of make their point early enough on and then just kind of repeat the point over and over and over. And take us away from the characters we care about actually talking to each other or doing things instead replacing that with a whole bunch of athleticism that I don't know, a past certain point I wasn't all that interested in. They, they matched up pretty nicely for me in terms of <laughs> what these two sequences are trying to do and, and what they did not explicitly did not do for me. Once again, just a whole bunch of uh, bodies on the screen doing a lot of complicated things, but like, you know how little we care for the soldiers marching around in the um, ballet sequence in American in Paris. That's about what I felt for those, all of those male strippers mm-hmm. uh, who have been selected from the street and trained to strip. <laughs> it was definitely a choice to make them all kind of interchangeable blanks that we'd never get to know, but why? <laughs> I guess is my question. I mean, I guess there's, you know, it's not like there was, the rest of the the film was eaten up with, with this really vital story that uh, we, we had to follow. It's, it's it's an odd movie. I mean, it started off as an HBO Max movie, and I, I think it almost feels like the attitude is like, well, this is kind of a a little streaming service coda to the real mm-hmm. movies, and it, it plays that way, and it's it's, it's disappointing. Yeah, it's just it's dysfunctional in so many ways. It's unconvincing in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also, to my mind, just kind of like prickly and unpleasant in a few ways, because both of these movies, to loop back to connections, are about people who deceive their romantic partners or their intended romantic partners uh, in order to have power over them, basically, in order to get themselves into or keep themselves out of situations that they would find unpleasant. And in both cases, it comes across as as kind of bullying. I don't know. Neither of these central relationships work for me. And it's because there's so much information being withheld deliberately, uh, just out of a a sense of maybe discomfort with the confrontation. I think uh, Alexandra is afraid that if she actually tells Mike the truth before she's gotten him to London, he might say no. I mean, he did say no several times over when she was asking him for the dance, which kind of, you know, turns him into the, the Lisa of the piece. <laughs> your, your lips say no, 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 but your willingness to take $6,000 from me says yes. 
So I don't know. She refuses to give him very basic information in order to get him overseas with her. And uh, Lisa refuses to give Jerry very basic information because she's afraid of what will happen if she does, or she's in denial about it. And I don't know, both of these relationships just feel based on deceit. And then on top of that, you know, both of the the rich women are kind of, I think, in denial, either in denial about what they actually want from the men they're patronizing, or deliberately concealing it from them in order to keep the relationship going while trying to throw money at them to to make them happy and to give them what they these women think they want. And it's very interesting to me that in one of these cases that is openly reviled by both the movie and the character and in the other, it works out perfectly. Yeah. And in both of them, they've mentioned both with Max and with Milo, like, Oh, she's done this before. And she just kind of like abandons it going forward. Like they're both shown as fairly like fickle and just kind of shiny object. Women. They even uh, both movies even have a scene of the sort of the rich woman's friends, like at a meal with, with them and kind of, you know, negging her in front of her, uh, her, her guy. Mm. undercutting yeah. her just by saying she's she's not serious about mm-hmm. this yeah yep she's not she's not capable of following through on things has he even heard of art basil <laughs> it's like another like funny line and Channing tatum does get some funny lines here and also like for as many problems as i have with this movie it's always nice to watch Channing tatum dance you know like we don't have movie stars who dance anymore. We don't have Gene Kelly's anymore, you know? And there is a, you know, like, I'm not going to go so far as to say, like, Channing Tatum is this generation's Gene Kelly, but they do both benefit from a certain, you know, inherent charm uh, that is intrinsically linked to their physicality on on screen. And, you know, in, in, in both cases, it, it kind of helps... I won't say completely absolve their characters of, of bad behavior, but it makes it go down a little smoother than it might otherwise. <laughs> Maybe one of the reasons it makes it go down smoother is because as soon as you have a character dancing in a film like that, you're taking it into the realm of fantasy. Like in the MGM musicals, it's just kind of expressly coded. I mean, do we really believe that Jerry goes home, sees all of these kids, and then does like a, a seven-minute tap dance number to amuse them probably not since nobody in the movie ever really talks about him being a dancer or or dancing like him included it's not it's not on his list of talents or interests it's a thing that gene kelly is doing because it's a Mm -hmm. musical and a dance sequence in a musical is kind of inherently a kind of fantasy and with magic mike the dances are a different kind of fantasy like a fantasy that could take place and and does take place in the real world but still, as soon as you start the dance sequences, you're you're kind of taking the movie out of an objective reality where these two characters' actions and, and words are important and just into a kind of fantasy space where they're they're there to give you entertainment. You know, they're literally there to put on a song and dance for you. Yeah, and Magic Mike specifically, it's very clear who the dance is for. Like it's for the female audience. And for and Gene Kelly and uh, an American in Paris, it's kind of like, okay, who's like, it's fun where they're all there for a musical, but it's really, it's a little more difficult to kind of find your um, logical thread through it as to why it's happening. 
I think it's for the audience. I think it's less explicitly for the the women in the audience. Yeah. But I think there is just sort of a sense of you love to see Jane Kelly dance. That's that's what you're here for. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like, you know, I, I understand not wanting to call Channing Tatum this generation's Gene Kelly, but I do think that at this point there's a certain feeling about Channing Tatum that is the feeling that people had about Gene Kelly, which is if you're putting him on screen and and he doesn't dance at some point in this movie, you're wasting. If he doesn't grind <laughs> on wasting. any flat surface he can find. <laughs> There's not another. I can't think of another actor. I'm sure you know. I'll think of someone as soon as I say this, but who has as defined by dance as Channing Tatum for yeah. our current era. Um, two d- two no, different dance franchises. Christopher Walken was uh, Christopher Walken can dance, but I don't think he's. That's kind of like one of. I don't think that's his signature. One of his signature traits, you know. It was no. I, I disagree with you. He there was there was a period. He is he is not the he is not a dancer of the physicality of Channing Tatum. He he is not as as classical a dancer as Channing Tatum is. But there was a period where just literally everything he showed up in, they would find a, a way to get him to dance because it was, it had become kind of a signature mm. for him. And it, it was fun. You know, there's, even if it's just a little, you know, country bears movie, like <laughs> little, little jig that he gets to do while he's alone. We're, we're I, bringing up country bears I interviewed again. years ago. <laughs> I know it's, it's our favorite movie, which we will always make connections to. Yeah. Everything. No, when I interviewed him for the AV club years ago, uh, I asked him about it because he was in the middle of a, a just a series of, you know, whether it's Pennies from Heaven or uh, the the Fat Boy Slim uh, video, he was just in a, a period where everybody stopped their movie to have him do a little dance because it was a thing he it's was a long, you're, 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 <laughs> several decades of birth. It's a long period. But. Well, I, I did, I did say uh, I, we're not we're not talking about this generation yeah, right true. now, but. Yeah. Well, it's good to have Tatum back too. There was like a five-year break there before we, we we didn't see him on screen. Yeah, and even if this this is Magic Mike's last dance, I hope it's not Channing Tatum's last dance. Like he's he's talked about not doing dancing anymore, and that, I mean that's pretty sad. Mm-hmm. Like I treasure his uh, sequence in Hail Caesar, the Colin oh, right, movie, yeah. where he's basically just there to do like a big Gene Kelly number. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a classic movie musical being shot. And uh, he's very convincing as a, a Gene Kelly era dancer in Hollywood. And it's a lot of fun. Gene Kelly, if you go through his filmography, he's in Xanadu in 1980. Uh, Hello Dolly in 1969. He's kind of, kind of, you know, phasing out, but he was 57 at that point. So, you know, by that standard, you know, Tim's got a few more years. Yeah. He, he can get, he can get one more dance based franchise and because he has step up and he has magic Mike. So he needs one more like good, solid dance franchise to make a triple, a Turkey. <laughs> well, you know, as I say, he's, he's talking about quitting, but Steven Soderbergh uh, totally retired from filmmaking. Right. How many years ago at this point <laughs> and how many times like he, he and Miyazaki are kind of rivals for who's uh, retired most. <laughs> we can probably wrap up just by doing a, a sort of a quick hits list of some of the other stuff going on in the the both of these movies. I mean, both uh, we haven't really talked about the fact that both are about Americans in a foreign country. 
maybe because neither of them really feels like it uses the setting at all or uh-huh. is very interested Sorry, did you in the see that bus they danced on is clearly in london <laughs> that is that is true uh there was also there was that fountain we we've definitely talked about the american in paris fountain i mean i magic mike was filmed in london right it, like it it's, was it feels kind of yeah. arbitrary doesn't it you don't really yeah. get a lot of local flavor yeah, I mean, like the backlot version of Paris has like more personality than you know than what we see of of London. But um, another sort of just like quick surfacey uh, connection is that they both have like gimmicky narration conceits, which we uh, we already discussed in in both cases. But the sort of handing off narration duties in the opening of An American in Paris, and then of course the daughter's novel wraparound in in Magic Mike. Um, I. I was actually kind of surprised that narration didn't come back into American in Paris. You know, it just kind of, but I, I'm not saying I missed it. I, I don't, I didn't want it to come <laughs> back, but it's just like such a, a common thing to have opening narration and closing narration that it feels like odd that it was just like there at the beginning and then that was it. You know, it would have fit pretty well now that I think about it. The opening narration is just so artificial and explanatory. Yeah, you could have told us what happened I mean, to Milo. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> you could have told us what happened to Milo, and you could have Adam established their rom- Adam's and Milo's romance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, could have could have said what Henri said to uh, Lisa that wasn't worth uh, as actually seeing on screen. Could have given Henri a happily ever after. Just all sorts of things that uh, he could have just you know blankly told us as the the closing uh, card was coming. <laughs> But wow, that opening narration, I'm, I'm going to say, Keith, I, I think it's dated pretty poorly, <laughs> mostly just because there's like such a resentment these days against trailer style. You probably wonder how I got here and who I am <laughs> kind of narration. And it, it's, it's straight up that like there are no record scratches. But apart from that, it's like... Yep, that's me. No, no, not that person. Up I here. like that part, though. That was a clever bit of uh, filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you do you. But there is no period in uh, in history before or after now where the Magic Mike narration about the feeling of dance <laughs> is going to fit in, be funny or comfortable. Uh, I guess as uh, yet another quick shallow thing, both of these movies have people creating art on a very, very tight deadline with a lot of concerns about whether the, whether the thing is going to be ready in time, which becomes just a very artificial and arbitrary limitation that ends up not really affecting either of them. But it's, uh, in both cases, an excuse for montages. Uh, you know, we, 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 we didn't really talk about uh, Jerry's frantic painting montage uh, in American Paris, because I, I don't know, I don't think there's that much to say about it, <laughs> other than, you know, it's, hey, he's painting for once instead of dancing. So I guess that, that's that's notable. It is a little funny that because like as a as like a landscape artist and a life artist, he has to have the the subject in front of him. So it's not one of these, you know, Pollock style, here I am alone with my art and yeah. my tortured soul kind of thing. It's like, all right, super quick tour of uh, Paris where I have to just paint whatever's in front mm-hmm. of me. I, I thought that there was a humor to yeah. that that I liked. Yeah. And then I already kind of mentioned the audition montage and in, in magic. Mike and how like I kind of resent the fact that it just glosses over giving any real introduction or personality to to these guys in favor of sort of like jokey thrusting whatever 
And are there other montages? There probably are. For me, the complete lack of identity of all of those dudes is kind of okay because you're selling a stage show where you're not going to get to know them all personally. You're not going to find out about their arcs or their tortured souls or whatever. But it does really highlight that we give one of those guys uh, a a big breakout scene and a a backstory and multiple solo dance performance numbers. And we still don't really know his name or anything about him. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure that he speaks during the movie. I uh, think he says hello. Or or, yeah. (laughs) Like hugging uh, Max at the airport when they meet. Like it's not that I think he's mute. It's just, I don't think he gets a single like coherent, significant line of dialogue despite getting the intro. Yeah. The only thing we know about him is that he, for some reason thought it was a good idea to leave whatever performance opportunities he had in Italy for a single night of stripping (laughs) in London. I mean, I know that, I know that Max has a lot of money, but that still seems like a big ask for us to, to believe. God, I hope she was able to pay them all. I hope she paid all. him up front. <laughs> I was going to say, she, she lost all her money. Is this like, <laughs> did this just turn into a tragedy where all these poor artists right? did this for nothing? Some closing narration could tell us that. <laughs> Given that her husband didn't want a divorce and that it was entirely like the, the choice to actually go through with it and lose her money was entirely her choice. I like to think that she did it after all of the bank transfers had gone through. <laughs> can, can, I have a, can I offer a fan theory? The Ooh, please. Magic Mike Live stage show is not a spinoff of this. It is a sequel. It is the re- This is how they're getting their money back is they're staging Magic Mike shows in Las Vegas Miami and London tickets available now on magicbacklive.com. I'm so glad that's a fan theory and not canon because if that was canon, I would have to throw my computer out a window right now. I do. I, I suppose the more I think about it, the more I like the idea of like opening the Magic Mike strip show review with, uh, you know, a, a dark stage and and all of the lights are off, and then just like all of the flat screens at the back of the the theater go on, and you see the text and like hear the bombastic uh, narration reading. Maxandra didn't pay yes. us for the show <laughs> we tried to do, so here we are tonight. Please give it up for, and by God, tip us all with dollar bills in our pants because we made no money off the last month of show. Perfect. See, I think we got something here. (laughs) I think we do have something here. Well, now we've got to go find out whether that's true. So the four of us are going to fly to London and uh, see this show. I I don't know why we're going to see it in London when it's playing domestically, but by God, we're going to go. For the true authentic experience, of course. Yes. Hopefully we can all hang out on the top deck or of a uh, double decker bus together and see if anybody gets on with feathers like glued all over him to I mean, uh, I can bring the feathers. sweet eyeball up to us. Yeah, I just want it's can we all just get in a fight in the rain? That would be big too. <laughs> this all sounds like a plan and it sounds like a way more entertaining plan than uh, watching Magic Mike's last dance. Well, if you want to watch Magic Mike's Last Dance or An American in Paris, uh, American in Paris is streaming on HBO Max. It's rentable on many, many digital platforms. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray. Magic Mike's Last Dance may still be in theaters where you are, but regardless, it hit premium streaming services the same day this episode is going to drop on February 28th. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next time. Genevieve, would you like to tell us about our episodes dropping March 7th and 14th? The best things in life are three. 
Or at least that's what we're hoping for our next set of episodes. I'm sorry, all Scott wrote that for me to say. After successfully reviving the Rocky franchise by playing Adonis Creed, son of championship boxer Apollo Creed, Michael B. Jordan steps behind the camera to direct Creed III, the first film in the entire Rocky series made without Sylvester Stallone's participation. But Adonis finds himself in a similar situation as Stallone's Rocky Balboa did in the second sequel 40 years ago. Both have reached the pinnacle of their sport and found happiness in their personal lives, which sets them up for the fall. In Creed III, that trouble comes in the form of Adonis's childhood friend, played by Jonathan Majors, whose incarceration short-circuited his own boxing ambitions. In Rocky III, that trouble comes in the form of Mr. T. In our next set of episodes, we'll talk about these two threequels with special guest Matt Singer, whose affection for Rocky III is topped only by his love of gymnastics as a deadly form of martial arts. Please join us. For now, we welcome your feedback on An American in Paris, Magic Mike's Last Dance, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone? Deirdre, where can people find your work? Uh, what's the best way to find out what you've been up to? Yeah, I would say the best thing is to just pop onto my Twitter. I post um, links to all my reviews and podcast appearances there. And I also have a link to my Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, my Twitter is ddcrim. That's D-E-D-E-C-R-I-M. And where typically can people find your work? Ooh, I write about horror movies for um, Roomwork magazine fairly frequently. I also write for a Canadian um, site called ThatShelf.com. It's pretty funny, uh, given that I met you at Fantastic Fest, which is genre film festival, given that I've had you write horror movie stuff for me, given that I know you know so much about your horror fandom, that we had you on to talk about a big classic musical and uh, the, the strip dance movie. I love it. I love it. Cinema's powerful, man. <laughs> well, next time I have to sit out for a horror movie because I'm a scaredy cat, we, we definitely know who to who to call, to, who to oh, tap yeah. in. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, since you're actually here this week, Genevieve, uh, how about you? I am a TV editor at Vulture, and I am on Twitter uh, retweeting things that I edited at Vulture at Genevieve Kosky. Keith? Uh, I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on Twitter at KFIP3000. I write for places like uh, The Ringer and GQ and TV Guide and Vulture and The Reveal uh, at thereveal.substack.com, which is a newsletter I do with our absent co-host Scott Tobias. Uh, our big feature for the next ooh, years, <laughs> we're working our way through all 100 <laughs> films on the on the uh, uh, Sight and Sound Top 100 list. Natasha, how about you? I am the film and streaming editor at polygon.com i you can find me on twitter at tasha robinson our absent uh doubtless having a blast in paris or london or wherever he is co-host scott tobias is on twitter at scott underscore tobias you can find him at the reveal uh, alongside keith and at many other fine publications around the world Stay updated on The Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod. Get bonus content and discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Next picture.